Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Good morning. I love to roll really close to the edge and see if it goes, <gasps> roll back. This is what we're going to get for a while. My name is James. I'm the lead pastor here. We are so, so glad you're with us. It's a super Sunday to be at, see what I did there? That was fun. I uh, tell you a little story on my brown sweatshirt. This is older than many of you sitting out here today. I, I bought this in 1991 when I graduated college, waiting for the Browns to appear in the Super Bowl. Still waiting. Waiting is not that easy, is it? That's going to be a little theme of how we start our study today. We're in the book of Acts, so grab your Bibles if you have it. Join me. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26 is where we're going to be today. We'll close out this chapter. I want to say welcome to the folks who are here in the room. It is always great to be with you. Welcome to those who are joining us online. If you were here last week, we started this brand new study through the book of Acts. We're very, very excited about it. And last week, Jesus gave his disciples kind of their marching orders. Do you remember that? He told them, you are going to be my witnesses. You will go out and make disciples who make disciples. And that's great. But then he told them they have to wait. And, and, and we're not good at waiting. <laughs> and this is on top of a period, you know, I mean, dear goodness, as you look at the, the history of the church, God's people had waited literally thousands of years for Jesus to actually show up, and then they have to wait for the duration of Jesus' lifespan here on earth, and now, you know, they're ready to go, but they got to wait just a little bit longer. They're waiting for something called Moving Day, the series that we're in, this day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is going to come into the lives of all Christ followers. They get that in one special day. We get it now the moment we profess faith in Christ, but, but they're here and they're waiting. And waiting is just hard. And, and waiting, honestly, gets harder the closer you get to whatever you're waiting for, right? Like me waiting for the Browns to get in the Super Bowl. It's just hard. Um, but, but, I mean, like if you have a kid who's excited about Christmas Day coming, like on December 4th, they're not so bad. They're kind of, you know, a little squirrely. But, like, on December 24th, they're bouncing off the walls, right? Because it's almost there. We learn a lot about waiting. I, I, uh, I'm not proud of this myself. I, I'm, I'm impatient. I'm just tremendously impatient. I didn't tell a lot of stories because my wife was here in the first, and I didn't want her going, amen. Uh, but I, I've, I've literally stood in the kitchen and yelled at the microwave before, hurry up. And, and, and so it's just not something you're proud of, right? But this is what we do. I can't remember where I read this, and it said there's a great test. Like if you want to marry somebody, make sure you give them this test. Don't tell them what you're going to do. But while you're still engaged, give them a device, give them a, a phone, a tablet or something, and slow Wi-Fi and see what they do. <laughs> After a couple minutes, if they chuck the phone, that might be enough red flag. You're like, I don't know. You may not be the one for me, right? It's a good test. That's what we're seeing here. The guys are waiting, right? They're waiting to get the Holy Spirit, to go out and be witnesses. While they're waiting, they've got one more big task that they have to accomplish as a group, and that's what we're going to see today. Join me. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's really near Jerusalem. It's just a Sabbath day's journey away. They walked everywhere they went. And when they'd entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Here's the roll call. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and 
Judas, the son of James. Eleven guys. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. That's amazing. They weren't alone. Together, there were women. There were many women who shepherded, did ministry, cared for Jesus. They were there. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. But we lead with this list of disciples, and as I said, there's only 11. Now, we know originally there were 12 disciples, right? But the 12th disciple, Judas Iscariot, has at this point in time betrayed Jesus. So he's already out of the picture. And we don't honestly know why there were 12 disciples. We're not 100% sure. It probably is connected to the fact that there were 12 tribes in Israel. But, but I just think this is so interesting. And I, and I can't remember where I read this. And it's been a few years ago. But someone did a scientific study that talked about how many friends we can have. You know, we got Facebook friends and Instagram followers. And, and we have tons of acquaintances. But how many friends can we truly have? Like the way we're wired, how many deep friendships can we have? And they did this huge scientific study. And, and you know what the number they came up with? Really, really close friends you can have? Three. Three really close friends. Now, that's how many people you can go really, really deep with. But there was another circle beyond that, and that's good friends. People that don't know all your stuff, but people know a lot of your stuff. Do you, do you have any idea how many good friends you can have? Twelve. <laughs> 12 was the number. And I read that study and I was like, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that already because I saw Jesus model that for us, right? There were three disciples he was really, really close with. There were 12 disciples that he walked with. And I think that's such a neat, neat picture. But for whatever reason, Jesus had 12 disciples. And, and to clear up some confusion here, the last disciple we listed in verse 13 is also named Judas. But just get this, there were two Judases, right? That was a really common name back in the day. Today, it's not a common name. I could ask for a show of hands, do you know anyone personally named Judas? Judas Priest, the rock group, does not count. No, we don't know any. And there's a reason, right? It's because of this account. It's because there's just too much baggage associated with that name. There was probably baggage for the other Judas. Like from here on, everywhere they went, they said his name Judas, and people looked at him funny, right? Because of this association. We don't like to be associated with that. That's why your kids in school don't have any classmates named Judas or Osama or Adolf, right? There are bad names that we just stay away from, right? These 11 remaining disciples, they gather together. says they go to an upper room. Now, there's famously an upper room where Jesus and the disciples had the Last Supper. And that's honestly where Jesus identifies Judas Iscariot as a traitor. So they could have gone to that room, but honestly, it doesn't have to be that room. The way homes were built back in the day, literally almost every home would have had an upper room like that. And so it doesn't have to be the same one. It really is not important to the story where they were. What is much more important is what they were doing, which is praying, and number two, who they were with. And it gives you the account. It says there were some other folks there who were devoted to Jesus. But I think it's really telling that we see Mary there, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And if we do just a quick review from the Gospels, Jesus' family was not always all in on him being God, right? If you remember early in the Gospels, there was a time early in his ministry when they thought he was crazy. Like Jesus was running around telling people he's the Messiah. What would you have done? Just try and put yourself in their shoes. If you had a brother who started running around town telling people he was God in the flesh, what would you think? He's telling stories about going water skiing without skis or a boat. <laughs> like, that guy has lost his mind, right? We wouldn't think he was God. People would come ask us. we go, no, my brother can't be God. I grew up with him. We were in the same house. We used to wrestle as kids. Now he's a couple fries short of a Happy Meal. That, that's what's happened, right? 
And for, there was a time when Jesus' family thought that. We see this in Mark chapter 3, and it's right after Jesus selected his 12 disciples. The, the, the things that Jesus was doing were so wild, his family holds an intervention. Do you remember that? Here's what it says in the text. And when his family heard it, the claims Jesus was making, all the stuff he was doing, they went out to seize him. Why? For they were saying he's out of his mind. They're trying to protect him from himself. Fast forward, what do we see in our text today? There they are, gathered together. It says they're in unity. It says they're in one accord with the 11 remaining disciples. And it says Mary was there. It says the brothers. We don't know if all of Christ's earthly family was there or not. But if you correlate the Gospels, he had a pretty big family, right? If you check those other accounts out, we learn that after Mary gives birth to Jesus, then she and Joseph have kids without the direct help of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> they do it the normal way, right? And, and like families back in that day, they had a pretty big family. A lot of folks will say Jesus had five brothers, two sisters. Two of Jesus' brothers kind of go on to make a big name for themselves. James becomes the pastor of the church that met there in Jerusalem. He actually is inspired to write a book of the Bible that bears his name. He's got another brother, Jude, becomes a pastor. He's inspired to write a book. It's a shorter book, but he gets in the, the canon. So, so what happened? Jesus' family originally thought he was crazy. Now they're all in. Now they're in unity with the disciples. What could have occurred? We know. It's because Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? Amen? They saw that. I don't know what kind of evidence God used when he drew you to himself, but for me, that would work. Like, <laughs> if I was an unbeliever and I witnessed the resurrection, if I saw the crucifixion and the resurrection, I'd be all in. So that's where they are. Now they're there and they're praying with unity with these other disciples. And it says, not only are they praying, they devote themselves to prayer. It's huge for them. And their prayer is so, so good. It's so pure. It's not a selfish prayer. I'm so guilty of praying selfish prayers. Their prayer is, I want to be of one mind with Jesus. That's a good prayer. That's a biblical prayer. And we know God's sovereign over all things. So even when I pray my selfish prayers, there's zero chance I'm going to change God's mind with my prayer request. But when I do it right, right, when we pray genuinely, when we pray humbly, here's the amazing thing about prayer. It's kind of a miracle. God can change our minds. He can change us to where we're in line with him. We're in accord. And that, I guarantee, brings him glory. And so I love that in verse 14. It says they're of one accord. That's unity language. That's the same language, honestly, that Jesus uses in John chapter 17 when he prays, and it's, it's often called the high priestly prayer. And he starts out praying for his guys. He prays for the disciples, but then he broadens the prayer. It gets really, really big. Why? Because there's a mission that they're going to be on that we're studying here in Acts. They're going to get to be his witnesses, and we'll see what happens in that. I'll share a little bit of that with you. John 17, starting at verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word when they go out to be obedient to the call. Here's a prayer, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. You picking up on the theme? I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. Now, the great thing is, I still see this playing out in the church today. 
There's a reason why we're gathered here together today. There's a reason why we devote time to praying because gathering and praying leads to unity. That's the pattern we're supposed to follow. We gather together, we pray, and then we're of one accord. And that's supposed to be practical, church. I guarantee it. It's universally applicable. You go to college and you and your college roommate don't get along, gather together and pray and see if God doesn't unify you. If you're having trouble with your spouse, if you're having trouble with your kids, if you're having trouble with a coworker, God's given us this miracle of prayer to bring us together. I read a book on this a long time ago. I honestly don't remember even the book, but it had this great wisdom. It said, if you're angry with someone, pray for them. Don't pray for them to get hit by a bus. Really, really pray for them, right? Don't plot revenge against them. Don't imagine them in an embarrassing situation. Pray God's will for them. And the book said it's literally impossible to pray for God's best for somebody and still be angry with them. And I've done it, and I'm telling you, it works. I don't do it all the time. I'm still growing, right? But, But when I do it, it works. I think the problem with that is we struggle with continual prayer. And so we do pray for somebody, and we pray for God's best for them, and we stop praying, and we remember, but I don't like that guy, right? But at least in that time we're praying, we have some unity. Our anger subsides. It's a beautiful thing. It does work. And I'm going to say this because I really think it rings true in this world. We live in a time with so much division, so much chaos, so much craziness. And and a lot of times we think we have a unity problem because we don't get along with somebody. I think what we really have is a prayer problem. I think if we would pray, this would all be different. I don't think we're praying for God's will to be done. That's free of charge. Here in verses 12 and 14, the disciples are there. The women are there. Jesus' family is there, and they show us the way. They show us what we're supposed to do today. Gather together, pray, be of one accord. Okay? Point number two on your outline. Leaders follow God's word. Look at verses 15 to 20 with me. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. We don't know all the backstory on Judas. Peter's saying he betrayed Jesus, right? For Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle And all his bowels gushed out. And remember, the Bible's not often PG or G. Um, And and I I don't want to address this because I'm squeamish, but I feel like I have to. A lot of people look at this verse and and pick on it. And they go, well, the Bible is contradictory. Because Matthew 27.5 says that Judas hung himself. But here in Acts 1.18, he says he fell down and burst open and his intestines spilled out. And that's about as graphic as I'm going to get. But but here's the deal. I want to say this. Without getting into too many details, both of those things can be true right? Because Judas could have easily hung himself, and and you don't know how long he hung there, and the rope broke, or the branch broke, and he hung himself from such a height, or, this is where I'm really struggling, he might have been hanging there so long, his body was engorged and descended, and when he fell, let's just be done, okay? What I'm saying is, 
I don't see any contradiction here. And we're going to move on. Verse 19, praise the Lord. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood, which if any of you is wanting to start a Christian punk rock band, that would be a great name, field of blood. Or Akeldama, honestly. It says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and, another psalm he quotes, let another take his office, which is what they're doing. That's what they're gathering in Jerusalem to do, is let Jesus pick the man who's going to take Judas's place. Now, we know Judas was a traitor. We know he's no longer in the picture. And so to fulfill Scripture, he's going to have to be replaced. And that's going to take some leadership. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. And we're reminded right away, Peter, with all his flaws, with all his failings, he's the leader of this group of disciples. Peter's the one who steps up and speaks up, right? And it's not a huge gathering. Text says there's about 120 people there. There were probably more people in the church at that time, but not a ton. But, but he stands up and he speaks up. That means he's the leader. So he's going to lead this process of replacing Judas. Why? So the number goes back up to 12. Now, again, try to picture yourself in this spot. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. Here the local church has gathered. They know they're down a man on the leadership team. Somebody's got to step up. And what does Peter do? He launches this biblical process to replace one of their guys. It's going to be a leadership transition. Now that's dicey right there, okay? <laughs> leadership transitions can be really, really rough. I mean, that, that can happen in Fortune 500 companies. It certainly can happen in ministry. In ministry, I've seen some leadership transitions that were phenomenal. I think the one God used to bring me here was done so, so well. I've seen some that were done really, really poorly. And those can have devastating consequences on God's local church. And maybe you've seen that too. I apologize if you have because it's ugly, right? But one of the neatest illustrations I've ever heard for a good leadership process is one I'm going to try and illustrate and do very poorly because I'm in a wheelchair. But have you ever watched a relay race, right? You watch the Olympics or you watch high school track and they run the relay race. And so what you do, they're running, they're running, they're running. And the idea is you hold the baton out and the person in front of them has to start running and hold their hand back. And they're going to receive the baton, right? And for that to be smooth, you want a good transition. That becomes a great handoff and nobody breaks stride. But that doesn't happen all the time, right? Sometimes you're trying to pass that baton off and the person literally fumbles it. And you drop the baton. Well, that team ain't winning. Because that person has to stop and pick up the baton. You've, you've lost all that momentum. You don't even have to drop it. You can just fumble it. You can have a bad handoff, and that'll slow you down enough that you're probably not going to win. You're, you're looking for that good, smooth, clean handoff. Do we have one here? No. <laughs> it's like Judas basically takes the baton and chucks it into the stands, you know, and Peter now has to go get it and bring it back so they can have this transition. He bails out. Ultimately, he commits suicide. It's a bad transition. Peter's going to step in and do what he can, and he's so, so wise here. He says, the reason we're doing it this way is so the Scripture can be fulfilled. Good job, Peter. That's the place to go. This is one of those examples where he does the right thing. There's lots of sources where we can get information. We can get information from the world. It's not always bad. There's some true wisdom out there. There's wisdom in the social sciences. There may be some great corporate example we can look at. There may be something in our present culture. But when it comes down to the business of the church, ultimately, where are we going to go? What has God's word said? That's going to be the thing that needs to lead us. And so there's a pattern here, and I don't want us to miss this either. These folks started with prayer. Where'd they go next? Directly to God's word. Those two things are connected. How? 
Prayer is how we talk to God. Routinely, how do we hear him talk to us? It's out of his word. And so this makes sense. Now we live, we've already said, in some weird times. I know we know that. But historically, what we live in is in between times. Do you get that? We're here in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And so in this dispensation of time, we've already seen a bunch of promises from Scripture fulfilled. We've seen a virgin giving birth. We've seen a Savior dying on the cross. We've seen the Messiah being resurrected and ascending into heaven. A lot of the biggies have already happened. But here we are in the gap, and many of the promises have not yet been fulfilled. Like Jesus coming back. That's a big one, right? But here's the thing I can promise you. Everything that you see in Scripture that's a promise, that's a prophecy, it will be fulfilled. Because the text says it will be fulfilled. And so here we get a reminder that the Holy Spirit literally is the one inspiring these words we find in the Bible. We're reading this story, and it came from Luke's pen, but where did it really come from? The Holy Spirit breathing it into him. Peter's here. He quotes David. That's why he says David wrote, because he quotes a couple Psalms. Well, well, those were David's words, but truly it was the Holy Spirit's voice, right? That's how we get the Bible. And that's where Peter turns to guide this group of disciples into how God's going to replace Judas, because he's following God's word. Man, we need to make sure we're always doing that. Next point on your outline. We're going to see in verses 21 to 26 how this plays out. How does this process work? And Peter's actually going to give us the criteria for who is going to make up this field of disciple candidates, right? Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. There's the criteria. And remember, it wasn't a big group of folks there, 120 some odd folks. And so they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. I'm thinking the city leaders of Lewiston and Clarkston named this guy because they gave him three names, just like all the streets here. But, <laughs> but I, I want to mention this because you see this a lot in Scripture. Names like this, like Barsabbas, when you're Simon Barjona. That just means son of, right? Barsabbas would literally mean son of the Sabbath. He was probably born on Saturday. That's the Jewish Sabbath day. So that's where he gets his name. He's the first candidate. The other candidate is a guy named Matthias. Now here's a little spoiler alert. His name literally means gift from God. Who do you think is going to win this contest? So verse 24, they prayed and said, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. You have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It's a bad place. He's separated forever. And they cast lots for them. That's a little weird. And the lot fell on Matthias. Big surprise. Gift from God wins. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Don't miss this in verse 24. They pray. And what they're really praying for is that God's going to make the choice. Because they have these two potential disciples. And when it's up to us and we got to choose between two people, we can mess that up pretty easily, right? Because what do we do? We forget to ask God, and we just start looking for what we want. Like we're going to scratch our own itch. Well, I like that guy. That guy's funny, right? Oh, I could never hire that guy as our worship pastor because he's a 49ers fan. You know, so things like that where, where you just have to make obvious choices, right? Well, <laughs> what would be the smartest thing to do? Because I hired him anyway. What would be the smartest thing to do is to ask God. 
And honestly, that's what we did when we hired Brenton. And he and his family have been such a blessing here, despite all the other stuff. <laughs> Ask God, Lord, who do you want? Who is it in your will to replace Judas? And, and a lot of you here are probably familiar with Judas's story. If you're newer to the Bible, if you're newer to church, you're not familiar with the story, please know, ask questions. Uh, if you have any questions on the sermon, anything, we do that midpoint podcast. There's a box right outside or you can email those, those questions. We love those. I hope you're listening to midpoint and we can kind of delve into this. But if you're following along, there's a huge question about Judas that almost everybody asks and it's this one. Was Judas a believer? That seems to be the big question, right? Was Judas saved? Was he a guy who had professed faith in Christ and then he lost his salvation? Because the thumbnail on Judas is we know Jesus chose him to be one of the original disciples. So Judas walked with all these guys for three years. Judas heard Jesus preach. He saw him do miracles. He saw him cast out demons. He was right there. He was part of Christ's earthly ministry and then he betrayed Jesus Christ. He handed him over to be crucified. He winds up committing suicide. So isn't that the question? Was he ever a true Christ follower? And if he was, did he lose his salvation? Now here's where I want to contend. We've got to be really careful in the way we talk about this because I hear people ask that and I think it's the wrong question. I don't think the question is, can we lose our salvation? I think the much better question is, could God lose one of his people? <laughs> could Someone who's a Christian lose Christ. And, and we've covered this so many times before. If this is your church, you've heard me say this. We didn't do anything to earn our salvation. It's a gift from God. It's his grace. So since we didn't do anything to earn it, what could we do to lose it? I'm of the camp that once we're saved, we do not become unsaved. And I'm of that camp because of what we read in the Bible. <laughs> John chapter 10, verse 28, probably the clearest in there. I give them eternal life. It's a gift, remember? And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. So I would contend that Judas was never a believer. But now what does that give us? That's just sad. That's just a sad, sad circumstance because he was so close to Jesus. But here's the reality. We can be close to Jesus and not close to Jesus. You know what I mean? We can be close to people who are close to Jesus and not close to Jesus. We can be close to people who love Jesus. We can have parents who love Jesus and not love Jesus. We can be in a rooted group with people who love Jesus and not Love Jesus. We belong to a church that strongly believes in Jesus and not personally believe in Jesus. It's sad. I don't think Judas was a believer. And when I say I don't think, what I mean is I've studied the scriptures. <laughs> and that's the clear takeaway. For clarity's sake, I want to provide three real quick reasons why I don't think Judas was a believer. Number one is this. The Bible refers to him as the son of perdition. Perdition is a word that literally means utter destruction. And it's correlated several times. If you read that high priestly prayer in John 17, you read that whole chapter, it says Judas is doomed for destruction. So the concept is the same there. Now, I do want to say this. Practically today, we can't call anybody this. We don't see hearts the way God does. We don't know where somebody's going to end up or not. But, but Jesus can say this, right? That he's a son of perdition. But in this, just know this, the only other person in the Bible who's called the son of perdition is the Antichrist. So can we agree this is a term that was used for unbelievers? 
In John chapter 6, Jesus looks at the disciples and he literally says, one of you is the devil. And we know from correlation, just the next verse, he's talking about Judas. Here to me is the confusing part. Jesus picks him, knowing full well what he's going to do, knowing that as he's going to be a disciple, he's going to ultimately betray him. That part to me is confusing. Why did he pick him in the first place, right? And, And ultimately, I just have to be okay with God's plan. Scripture says God's ways are higher than my ways, and I get that. Scripture also says, and we know Scripture has to be fulfilled, that Jesus is going to be betrayed, and Judas is the one who betrays him. So so Jesus picks that knowing the Scripture will be fulfilled, and smoke starts rolling out of my head. He knows things I don't know. This whole concept can, can be a bit confusing. I don't think it's supposed to be that confusing. But here's the issue. We're fallen people. We're sinful people. And so we read a passage like this, and we read someone is doomed for destruction, and the first thing we want to do, if it's not one, it's 1A, we want to blame somebody. And a lot of times we blame God. We make that person who is doomed a victim. Now here's what we have to remember, kind of universally. God is not the one who makes us do bad things. Yes, ultimately, God is the one who allows the bad things. God is the one who knows if we're going to do those in the first place, but he doesn't make us do those things, even though he is sovereign over all things. I hope that doesn't sound that tricky, but we have to remember, God existed before anything else existed. God is the one who created everything, so he's sovereign over all things, and he created us. And so as fallen people, when we do bad things, God's not responsible for those things. And we know that because he didn't create us as robots, right? He didn't create us where we just 100% obey him all the time. He created us with the ability to make decisions, make choices. We a lot of times call it our free will. And so when we do goofy things, when we make bad choices, when we sin, we're responsible for those things. But part of our fallenness is, man, we love to play that blame game. We would love to blame somebody else for the stuff we did. We'd love to divert attention away from our actions and place it somewhere else. And God is just a really easy scapegoat. God didn't commit that sin that I committed. God didn't commit the sin that Judas did, okay? That's why Judas was doomed for destruction, because God knew his heart. God knew what Judas was going to do. I referenced this passage earlier. This is John 6, verses 70 to 71. Jesus is talking to his guys, and he says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? The next verse says, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, how does this play out in our lives today? And I'll just use myself as an example in this. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I (laughs) I have lots of addiction issues. Uh, pornography used to be a huge issue for me. Food is still a huge issue for me. Diet Coke is obviously a pretty big issue for me, although I'm putting it down the line. Now, here's the real reality to this, okay? My mother was an alcoholic, and my father let me watch pornography, both me and my brother, at, at a very young age. I remember watching uh, my first pornography when I was eight. So is that my mom and dad's fault? Because I sinned, because I engaged in those things, can I blame them? Well, I'd like to. (laughs) I did for many years. I thought that was easier. And then I read the Bible. You know what the Bible says? Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30. God says, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. 
declares the Lord God. And then he tells me what I'm supposed to do. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Now let's correlate some more scripture. Did the sins of my father, did the sins of my mother affect me today? Of course they do. Scripture says to the third and fourth generation. I get that. Does the sin of Adam affect each and every person sitting in here today? You know it does. Sin always has consequences. But church, we're only going to be judged for our sins. I'm not going to be judged for yours. You're not going to be judged for mine. Amen? Truly the buck stops here. We are responsible for how we deal with our sin condition. In this passage, Judas was responsible for the actions he committed. He didn't do it because God made him do it, okay? It's reason number one. Second reason why I believe Judas was never saved. I don't believe Judas ever loved Jesus. If you correlate the scripture, boy, it seems to me like what Judas loved was money. Judas was the CFO. He was the chief financial officer. He, he was the bookkeeper for Jesus' earthly ministry. And for the duration of the time he held that job, he was cooking the books. <laughs> he was stealing money the entire time. He would rather have money than Jesus. And so ultimately, when the time came to betray him, he sold him out for what was not a lot of money back in the day. But he did it. Why? Because money was his God. That sounds like an unbeliever to me. Number three, and this one's harsh, but at the Last Supper, Judas became Satan-possessed. Actually, see this in Luke 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Now, we made this case. You can go back and listen to our sermon series through Luke. Believers cannot be demon-possessed. Amen? We can be demon-oppressed, for sure, because Satan's that guy. But as Christ followers, what do we have in us that we talked about last week? Boom! We got the dunamis, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And so we can't be demon possessed. We can't be Satan possessed when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We can be oppressed. What do we see with Judas? He was Satan possessed. That's strike three for me. Judas was not a believer. Judas wasn't a godly guy who had a couple bad days. No, he, he was an ungodly guy who got exposed on a bad day, revealed who he truly was. But this passage is a little bit about leadership. The Bible in general is not about leadership, right? Much bigger picture, it's about God's love. It's about his plan for reconciliation with his people. But leadership comes up. There's some really good examples. There's some really bad ones, right? There's some, there's some good case studies. I think this is probably the best bad case study. I think Judas is, is a horrible leader. Adam's a pretty bad leader too. We can study that one. But Judas just does this poorly, right? And he checks out. And so here Peter is, he's going to step up to fulfill Scripture. And to do that, he's got to meet two criteria from this pool of guys. The criteria says Judas's replacement has to come from a pool that was made up of men who'd been hanging around for a long time. <laughs> they had to have been there since Jesus was baptized. They have to have been eyewitnesses to the resurrection. There's only 120 guys there. Some of them are already disciples. And so this high bar gives us two guys. Our, our buddy, the son of Sabbath, and our buddy, gift from God. How is Peter and the other disciples going to choose between these two qualified candidates? They're not going to choose. They're going to let God choose. Now, the problem with this passage is you read it on the surface, and it doesn't look like they did it, right? Because it looks like Peter took some dice and blew on his hand. <sighs> Come on, give me an apostle. Give me an apostle. Bingo, got one. And, and that's what it looks like, right? Because it says they cast lots. And whenever we think of that, we always think that's, that's rolling the dice. That's drawing straws. Then we think that's up to chance. 
And then we have to remember to correlate the whole Bible. Nothing's up to chance. God is sovereign over all things. And again, God's word is the guide here. There's wisdom in Proverbs that tells us exactly how this works. Proverbs 16, The lat, pardon me, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no coincidence in this life. There's no chance in this life. God is sovereign over everything, even as insignificant as the roll of the dice. So the reality is God is the one who picks Matthias. And that's how he becomes an apostle, now the new 12th apostle. And then we hear literally nothing from him in the rest of Scripture. If you study some church history, though, it does show he was obedient. He joined in with these guys whose mission was to go and be witnesses. Actually, Matthias winds up being the apostle to Ethiopia. So he's part of that charge to go to the ends of the earth. And that wraps up Acts chapter 1 for us. Really sets the stage for us. We can quit waiting next week. We're going to get to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But, but as we close today, I want to share with you just the thing that God was really pressing on me this week. As we read this passage, who's doing the leading? Who steps up? Luke is the guy writing it, but, but Peter is the guy who steps up, right? And who's he talking about? Judas. So here's our two guys, Peter and Judas. What did these guys have in common? This is the final point on your outline. Well, they were both disciples, right? Both had Jesus as a friend, as a mentor. They both got to do incredible stuff. They got to eat meals with Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. Jesus prayed for both these dudes. They both had an amazing small group. As a matter of fact, they were in the same small group. They were called the disciples. So that's pretty impressive. They both had the same mission to go out and be witnesses, to make disciples who make disciples. And, you ready for this? They both failed Jesus. We don't have time to look at all this in the scripture, so if you'll let me, I'll paraphrase. But, but we've already seen how Judas failed. How did Peter fail? When Jesus was arrested, do you remember this? After he was falsely tried, after he was sentenced to crucifixion, Peter kept following him, but now he followed him from a distance, right? Like he wanted to follow him from safe. Like if something happens to Jesus, I don't want him to happen to me, right? And so he's there, but now he's moved away a little bit. And do you remember he got busted? He's there out in the outer courtyard, and somebody goes, hey, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' guys? Oh, yeah, yeah, your accent gives you away. And do you remember what Peter said? Not me. And he wound up denying Jesus three times. Three times he denies his Lord and Savior. Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. They both failed. So what's the difference? They have lots of things in common. What's the big difference between Peter and Judas? how they responded to failure. Judas walked away. Judas never repented. And Judas wound up separating himself forever. What'd Peter do? By the time we read this account, he's there. He's the leader of the group. What happened? Again, if you read your Bible, Jesus appeared to the group of the disciples three times while Peter was there. Peter saw that. Later on, Peter is a fisherman by trade. He goes, that's it, I'm going fishing. And he goes and takes some buddies, and they can't catch a thing. Do you remember this story? And, and so Jesus shows up, and he's wanting to have breakfast with the guys, so he arranges this miraculous catch of fish, and, and Peter's there. And somebody goes, man, it's Jesus on the shore. And do you remember what Peter does? <laughs> Dives in, and he swims to Jesus. He hits the shore, and he runs to Jesus. Judas didn't do that. 
And again, it's such a sweet, sweet scene. John 21, you can read it on your own. Jesus forgives Peter. He basically reinstates Peter to ministry. See, Jesus sees hearts. He knows Peter's struggling. He knows that that's weighing on him, that he denied Jesus. And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, I never denied you, Peter. He basically explains, that's why I went to the cross. So I would be able to forgive people. I forgive you, Peter. And because you love me, test his love three times because Peter denied him three times. He says, because you love me, now go out and do what? Feed my sheep. Go out and do ministry. Go out and shepherd people. Go out and teach the Bible. And isn't that exactly what we see Peter doing here in Acts chapter 1? Doesn't he get it? Church, what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Peter took his failing. He took his sin back to Jesus. Judas took his sin to the grave. Now, I promise you on this, I'm not trying to do this new thing like where every sermon in Acts is going to end on this horribly somber note. I know I did it to you last week when we were talking about witnesses being martyrs. This feels pretty somber, but no. There's so much hope here because we still have the chance to respond like Peter. Amen? Because we're still drawing breath. Whatever failings we have, Whatever sins we've committed, today is the day we can take them to Jesus. Today is the day we can run to him. Today is the day we can swim to him. All we got to do is go and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And use me the way you use Peter. Use me to go out and be transparent and tell people you're a God who forgives. You're a God who gives grace. Let the story of my failing, let the story of my sin, my shortcoming, be this incredible example of just how loving you are just how gracious you are, just how holy you are. Church family, the question here is not, well, up to this point in time, have I sinned more like Peter or have I sinned more like Judas? That's not it. The question is, am I going to respond more like Peter than like Judas? And it's not too late. As long as we're here, it's not too late. If we're here and we don't know Jesus, we can run to him right now and be saved for eternity. Or maybe we're here and we're like Peter. We're already saved, but it's not too late to run to him and be forgiven of our sin. Reinstated to this unique ministry he's already called each and every one of us to because every person who's here as a Christ follower is a witness. We're supposed to make disciples who make disciples. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Let's pray. Daddy, thank you for this passage and thank you for the opportunity to study. And God, help us to make choices like Peter and not like Judas. Help us to take our failings to you. Help us to put those at the foot of the cross. God, if we're here and we don't know you, we don't have a saving relationship with you, today is the day of salvation. We run to you, confess our sins, repent, place our faith in you, and our lives will be sealed for eternity. God, if we're here and we're Christ followers and we're struggling with any addiction, we're struggling with any failing of this life, we're struggling with our own humanity and our sinfulness, God, we run to you. Beg forgiveness. Your word says we confess our sins. You are faithful and just to forgive our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and we'll be reinstated, we'll be restored to the unique ministry you've given each one of us where we can use the Holy Spirit gifts you've given us. God, help us to do that. Help us to be your church in a way where you, God, get all the glory. Lord, we 
love you and we praise you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.